2: Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Kimberly Atkins-Store, Joyce Vance, and me, Barb McQuaid. Jill is off on one of her wild, exotic adventures around the world, but we can't (laughs) wait until she comes back so we get to hear all about it. But today, we will be discussing the mess at Mar-a-Lago, the latest in the January 6th investigation, and this week's affronts to the First Amendment. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. Um, But, you know, before we dig into it, can we just take a moment of appreciation for Serena Williams. Have you guys caught any of her matches this week? She's had two. I, I watched Monday's match and I thought, wow, that, that's it. What a, fan, a, a fantastic finale. What a show because she was facing the number two in the world on Wednesday. So I yeah. didn't watch because I thought she might lose. And then that was what was even better. Did
1: you guys watch <laughs> any of those? I have been watching. I am such a fan of Serena Williams. I have seen um, some pretty good, sports performances in my life. I'm lucky enough to have seen you know, Jordan play live at the Palace of Auburn Hill- Hills. And I saw Pedro Martinez on the mound at Fenway Park, but there has never been an athlete mm-hmm. that is as mesmerizing, just so good as seeing Serena Williams at the U.S. Open, which I did get the chance to do years ago. I'm so glad that I did. Um, She's such a phenomenal person. Her story, um, you know, everything that she's gone through as a mother, uh, as a woman, as a Black woman in in the sport that is not always kind to them, uh, to put it mildly. And I have such respect for her. I know that even if she walks away from the court, there are so many other great things that she's going to be involved in. And I look forward to that, but I will miss I will miss miss her uh, in athletic action. What yeah, about she says she's
2: not retiring. She's evolving.
1: Evolving her, right her to the phrase. next part of her life. Yeah. I love it. How about you, That's Joyce, you what fan caught girl?
2: my attention,
0: too. I, I am a fan. I mean, I love that she's a strong woman who's an athlete and a mother at the same time. I think that sounds such an important message. But I'm interested in this evolution. I can't wait to see what her next act is. I don't think we live in a time where a woman like Serena will sit back quietly on the sidelines. Ha, ha, ha. Um, I think she will she will remain um in center court.
2: And I think she's going to do great things. I can't wait to see it, yeah. I've been so um proud to watch her just as a woman. You know, she's she emits such power. And then, you know, this week with her victory, such grit, uh, you know she's forty one, and she is, you know, still doing it really, just on guts and strength and um concentration. it's it's really been something to see. And, you know, I also think she's a great example of, You don't have to um, uh, demand or expect perfection from your heroes. I mean, she's had moments when she had, um, you know, temper outbursts on the court. I think once telling a line umpire that she wanted to shove a ball down his throat, maybe throwing in some expletives. Um, But, you know, we're all human and we have um, make mistakes uh, and exercise poor judgment. But, man, overall... What, um, not only a phenomenal athlete, but she's really owned her own story. Um, You know, to be able to play as long as she did, she did it very unconventionally, taking time off uh, to pursue other interests. And where lots of young phenoms burned out, you know, she's lasted for decades. So she's really something. And I I agree with both of you. I I think I can't wait to see what she's going to do next.
1: The greatest of all time. And listen, if McEnroe can run his mouth, then she can. (laughs) Amen.
0: So lots of news this week from Mar-a-Lago, where the government is challenging Trump's request that seized documents be returned to him and that the court appoint a special master. We've seen three pleadings so far, Trump's opening brief, the government's response, and Trump's reply. And it has been a minute. We've learned a lot. Yesterday, the court held a lengthy hearing. The judge hasn't ruled yet, but we have had the release of a more detailed inventory of what was seized. So, Barb, DOJ started out in its response brief making legal arguments about the court's jurisdiction. In essence, whether the court could hear the case, could decide the case. It's pretty technical legal
2: stuff. Can can you uh, explain? Yeah. So the the basic arguments were these. Number one, Donald Trump has no standing to contest the seizure of this property because it's not his property. So, you know, standing says I'm a real party in interest here. I could face a real harm uh, to my interests uh, in this case. So it's you know it's a real case of controversy. But as the Justice Department argued, like this is our stuff. We just went in and took what was rightfully ours. I saw someone wrote this and I, I can't remember who's. So it's not an original thought, but it's like said, it's as if he went home on Air Force One and kept it. And uh, said, it's mine. (laughs) What are you talking about? It's mine. Like, no, it's not yours. It belongs to the United States of America. You got to use it for a little while, and now we want it back. So standing was the first legal issue. The other is um, this idea that, you know, under Rule 41, you can request um, return of property, but you can't challenge constitutionality, which is one of the things he did. That can come later if there's an effort to use it against you in a criminal case, sometimes, you know, if if it was improperly seized, it can be suppressed, sometimes referred to as fruit of the poisonous tree, if the warrant was somehow um, invalid or lacking or legally deficient. But the time to litigate that comes later if and when charges are filed. And then, you know, the third problem is basing um, this uh, argument on Uh, executive privilege. There may be a a, a slim piece of um, uh, validity to an argument about attorney-client privilege, though that's usually used in cases where the person whose property is searched is a lawyer. Um, There may be some argument here, but his assertion is all about executive privilege. And he's not the executive anymore. He's arguing with the executive branch that you can't have your stuff because I get it. Uh, He's really turned that on its head. So I think all of those things are kind of legal reasons that this motion should fail.
0: You know, it's really an interesting feature of the landscape here. There's always this little undertone when Trump's lawyers talk about him. They refer to him as the president. They write the briefs as though he's the president. He's never the former president. But the judge in the hearing yesterday, to the extent that she weighed in on executive privilege— did seem to contemplate that we were talking about the the sort of the remainder portion of executive privilege possessed by a former president. So it'll be interesting to see if she does rule in his favor, at least to some extent, how she treats him. That's that's one of the things that I'm definitely looking for. Um, So, Kim, the other big part of this lawsuit is the special master request. Can you talk about the state of play with that and how you expect the judge to rule?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, So I think as we've explained before, a special master is brought in when uh, certain circumstance warrant. It's usually a retired judge um, or someone else uh, uh, in the legal field who can act as an independent arbiter of a particular dispute. And in this case, uh, Trump's team asked for a special master in order to go through and vet these documents because they said that there could be privileges, um, as Barb said, executive privilege and uh, the attorney-client privilege. I didn't. I thought that this was a this was a, a goner from the start. I thought this was a terrible argument for a lot of reasons. But the judge in the case before all of these filings, it's important to note, before Monday's filing, had indicated that. She might appoint one. And on one hand, I can see it. This is a very high profile case. It does involve a former president. And so perhaps there was a sense that having an independent arbiter of this issue might be good for the purpose of uh, maintaining public um, trust in this entire process. And I, I don't think that that's a minor argument. But in this case, there are so many reasons why I think that this request should fail. And I was surprised that the judge even said that much. One, if the purpose of this is to vet these documents for potentially privileged uh, information, the Justice Department already did that. They did. They had somebody do that. They flagged uh, documents that they said could potentially be covered by attorney-client privilege, even though, as Barb said, they, the Trump team didn't even ask for that. Secondly, the executive privilege claims are really they're they're th- that they're thin at best because, as we said, he's a former president and thirdly they didn't even make this request for the special mar- uh, master until weeks later the request itself was already so tardy that it's hard to believe that that would have um a strong case so i in all in normal world i would say that this would be um, de- declined that the judge would not grant this request but just based on our own words and because we're in bizarre world i actually don't know what's going to happen here And it's also worth noting that the DOJ opposes it because they said that it could just be a delay tactic. And whether it is or not, delaying this investigation can pose a serious risk to national security.
0: On television today, former Attorney General Bill Barr said that there was no need to appoint a special master in this case. On Fox News, he said that. (laughs) I mean, when you have (laughs) lost Bill Barr, right, you are in deep trouble. But the judge has shown some willingness to do this. So I I think this is going to be interesting to watch. She said that she could rule um, really at any time. So we'll see if uh, she's going to ruin the Labor Day weekend or not. But Barb, we don't know how she'll rule. We're still going to have to wait on that. She did, though, release this updated inventory of items that DOJ sees during the search. Did you learn anything new from that? And do you think it'll
2: impact the overall case? Well, yeah, I I think, um, you know, there are a couple of things. One is, I guess this was written about before, that... You know, documents were inter intermingled. I guess is the word with things like newspaper clippings and magazine articles, which really I think demonstrates a um, a very reckless way to store them. But even more importantly, they found empty folders with classified banners, or empty folders with labels that said um, "return to staff" or "military aid," and they're empty. Uh, I think I think that creates two really significant issues. One is where is this stuff? I mean, is it gone or is it just loose in the boxes? Has he he sold it? Like, where is it? Um, That's really, really alarming that there's classified information that's out there uh, and we may not even know where it is. So that, number one, was very significant. I also think it really increases the stakes and the likelihood of criminal charges. Um, You know, if you give credence to what Jim Comey said back at the time when he recommended no charges against Hillary Clinton. He said that, you know, he and the FBI had kind of scoured the history of the cases where people were charged. And although Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump both, I think, have technical violations of some of the classified handling statutes, what Jim Comey said at the time is charges are typically not filed and no reasonable prosecutor would file charges unless one of the following aggravating factors was present. And it was uh, willful, um, violation of the law, um, storing the materials in such a way that it, it risked exposure, uh, disloyalty to the United States, or obstruction of justice. I think with this revelation, um, we hit probably three out of four of those. Um, it, to me, really makes it far more likely that charges will be filed because I just don't see how you can decline charges. I, you know, it, 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 it invites a... Um, a sideshow, uh, a circus, an attack, a danger. But I just don't see how you just let this go when the violation is so blatant and, and now so dangerous. Well, Kim, how
0: about it? That really is the big unanswered question here, right? Will there be charges? Won't there be charges? Will anyone else get prosecuted? We know that now some of Trump's lawyers appear to have exposure because they certified that everything had been returned. How far along do you think prosecutors are? And do you think that they've made up their minds already?
1: Yeah, I I don't know. I, I echo everything that Barb just said as to the point. Um, if you ask me whether he should be prosecuted, I personally think it's four out of four of those factors, <laughs> not just three out of I four. I was going to say that. <laughs> and um, I, I think, again, in a normal world, that that's exactly what would happen, but I've been proven wrong so many times when I'm asked to predict what could likely happen. And he's evaded. I mean, what's remarkable about Donald Trump is that he has evaded responsibility. Just think about all the things, two impeachments, the Mueller investigation, so far in the January 6th investigation, and now this. He has invaded responsibility time and time again. And I find it really hard to say, oh, yeah, they're definitely going to prosecute. I mean, I I just don't know. I find it fascinating the point you made about the attorneys, because increasingly we are seeing in these situations that attorneys, sometimes attorneys who if you'd asked us about them ten years ago, would have seen, we may not have agreed with their politics, and we may not have you know seen eye to eye with them. But we would have not we would not have doubted that they would have upheld their um, oath as officers of the court and, and acted in a responsible way in furtherance of, of their clients' interests. You see them get caught up once they get into Trump world in a way that leaves them open to. Um, Potential civil and criminal liability in a way that I just find gobsmacking. But the that that's a long way to say. I don't know. I don't know. I hope so, but I don't know. What do you think, Barb?
2: Um, You know, uh, Joyce was asking me earlier about uh, you know Judge Napolitano, who's a right wing conservative commentator who says he thinks they will be because the Justice Department would not have gone through all this effort if they did not intend to charge him. And I disagree with that. I mean, keep in mind that the Justice Department wanted to do this all quietly. It was Donald Trump who announced that there had been a quote-unquote raid at his home, at his beautiful home, um, because the way he plays defense is to go on offense and to try to suggest that there was something wrong about this. I think the Justice Department went in to get its documents, and it was going to take it one step at a time. And in fact, they were incredibly patient with him, first asking voluntarily, then using a subpoena. And we don't know uh, how? But somehow they got wind that there were still documents there, even if they're after they attested that there were no longer documents there, and so they used a search warrant. And sure enough, there were like 30 boxes of documents there, and so I don't know that their plan all along has been to charge. It may have been we just want to go in quietly, we just want to get these documents back. But now that you know Trump has made such a cause celeb of it, I don't know how they avoid charging because I think you have to worry about the appearance that the law is not being applied uniformly to various people. Um, you know, I know they're going to think very carefully about charges, but I think Trump himself may have <laughs> invited charges by fighting this so publicly. But I don't think the decision has been made. Um, we don't know what's behind those redaction bars. There could be some really egregious conduct. It could be some very benign conduct. Whatever it is, it indicates how those how it was DOJ knew that the documents were there. So I think they take these things one thing at a time. They're going to investigate people. Um, I think why he had them matters a lot. Um, what he did with them, if he's done something with them, all of that matters. You know, to Kim's point, we've
0: watched Trump avoid responsibility so many times when really smart prosecutors like Barb McQuaid could look at the facts and the law and say, yes, this is a case that I would indict. And because we've had that experience with Trump more than once, I think it's done a lot of damage to the rule of law and to people's perception of how credible the rule of law is in this country. So to the extent that Merrick Garland is committed, and and I believe him, I take him at his word, I see indication every day that his primary goal is to restore the rule of law and people's confidence in the Justice Department then I think that you're right, Barb, when you say it becomes a very difficult situation. I'll tell you what the appellate lawyer in me worries about, but I think that there's plenty of room for DOJ to get around this. And it's the admissible evidence problem, right? You always have this in a case that involves classified material. As a prosecutor, you've got to negotiate with the intelligence community to see whether they're willing to let you um, have any of the classified material declassified so that it can become admissible in court, or use some of the other procedures for letting the jury see classified material and, and using it in court? But it is always a really big struggle. But you know, I read into the fact that they were willing to go ahead and search Mar-a-Lago, some sort of an acceptance that if it got to that point, that they would have to prosecute, that they had to be willing to do it if the evidence trended that way. Otherwise, I'm not so sure that you do the search, that, that you go about it in that way. In any event, I think none of us has a great crystal ball. Um, we'll have to wait and see like everybody else. But this may ultimately end up being the most pressing question we have as we go forward.
1: There is a lot of news happening around the January 6th probe. Barb, as we record this, two of Trump's White House attorneys, Pat Cipollone and Pat Philbin, testified before a federal grand jury. They just left after being there, each for several hours They testified in connection with the events of January 6th, as I said. What information do you think prosecutors were interested in hearing from them? Well, I think
2: we know that Pat Cipollone, at the very least, was present for some of the really key, key moments. I know that phrase uh, from Hamilton, being in the room where it happens, is overused all the time. But Pat Cipollone really was in the room where it happened. Um, He was present during that meeting where Jeffrey Clark was, um, you know, vying to be the acting attorney general and wanted to send letters to states falsely stating that DOJ had found irregularities in the election in their states and suggesting that they convene their legislatures to select alternate slates of electors. And it was Pat Cipollone who kind of put a stop to it by saying that would be a murder-suicide pact, and everybody who touched it, including all of us, would be incredibly harmed and damaged by that. And that's kind of what put an end to it. So, you know, what happened there in that room, I think would be fascinating to hear about. We also know he was at that meeting in December, December 18th, um, where um, Sidney Powell was there and Trump was thinking about appointing her to be a special counsel, um, where uh, uh, Rudy Giuliani was in the room. They were talking about seizing voting machines. Uh, and Cipollone, again, kind of shut the whole thing down. And after that meeting was when Trump sent out that, that tweet about, you know, you know, be there January 6th, we'll be wild. Um, And then, of course, on January 6th itself, he was the one who told Trump, you've got to say something, you know, we're all going to have blood on our hands. You've got to stop this. Um, And uh, was one of the people, you know, begging him to um, uh, say something to get people to go home. So I think all of those things, and they tie together a lot of different threads. Um, This idea of of fake electors and alternate slates, using the DOJ to um, uh, kind of um, legitimize this idea, the idea of stealing voting machines, I think he's got so much information there,
1: yeah, I agree, and i i, I will note that this is another attorney mm-hmm. uh who was in the position uh, of being in the middle of this, but he, as White House counsel, both of them, both Cipollini and Philbin, were their client was the presidency uh it was the White House, it wasn't Trump himself. Mm-hmm. So there's no claim here that Trump, even though I'm sure he'll make it if he hasn't already made it, that there's some sort of privilege that's being breached here. Uh, certainly when um, uh, criminal events happened uh, in a criminal investigation, privilege is not an excuse anyway. But Joyce, this week in other January 6 news, we also saw the most serious sentence yet for a January 6th participant Ten years in prison for a former NYPD cop who attacked Capitol Police officers with a flagpole, ripped the gas mask off of another police officer. Really uh, appalling stuff. But this 10-year sentence was not only less than what prosecutors asked for, it was a downward departure from the sentencing guidelines. Help us understand this.
0: Yeah, so I at first this seemed very troubling to me, but the more that I parsed the facts, the more I understood what Judge Mehta was doing, and, and not as disturbing maybe as it looks on its face. The government had asked for a sentence of 17 and a half years— That was the low end of the guideline range. We know that although there are statutory sentences that are set, in reality, defendants in criminal cases are typically sentenced based on this formula in the sentencing guidelines, which looks at a lot of factors, including the defendant's uh, prior criminal history and also their conduct in this instant offense. So this was following a trial, and DOJ still requests the low end of the guideline range far more than any other defendant has received so far in this case, but very serious conduct. And the judge is influenced by a couple of factors, including this defendant's many years of service in the military and law enforcement, and decides to depart downwards. And I don't love that, quite frankly, um, as a prosecutor. I feel like someone who's had experience in law enforcement and the military should perhaps have appreciated the consequences of their conduct more, But when you think about the number, the 10 years itself, that's a heavy sentence. That's a sufficient sentence to achieve some of the underlying goals of the criminal justice system, to to achieve goals like punishment and incapacitating a dangerous man to keep the community safe. Ten years, I think, is a sentence that will deter others, and hopefully it gives this defendant some opportunity for rehabilitation. So when you take all things on balance and the fact that the judge wanted to make sure that he didn't impose a sentence that was really out of sync with the kind of sentences that other similarly situated defendants were receiving, it makes a lot more sense than it did at first blush.
1: Well, I really appreciate your explanation of that because, yes, at first blush, it did look, um, despite the really, I mean, this is a really stiff sentence, um, but that does explain things a little better. Uh, So we also know of another new arrest made in connection to the January 6th probe, another lawyer, perhaps allegedly behaving badly, Kelly Sorrell, who was not only the lawyer for the extremist group, the oath keepers, but also temporarily served as its leaders when Stuart Rhodes himself was arrested, was charged both with storming the Capitol grounds on January 6th and with tampering with evidence in connection with the investigation. But unlike her boss, she is not facing a charge of seditious conspiracy. What's up with that? I want both of your takes on this. We'll start with Barb.
2: Yeah, really interesting. You know, anytime a lawyer gets indicted, I think it's interesting and it's not something the Justice Department does lightly. She's been charged with conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. So trying to stop that January 6th event, um, as well as the substantive offense of obstructing an official proceeding, a trespassing charge, and then the really interesting one, which is obstruction of evidence. Uh, It alleges that she withheld documents, uh, from a grand jury that was investigating and that she uh, altered, destroyed, mutilated and concealed objects uh, with intent to impair the grand jury's investigation. So, um, you know, it, that sounds like in her capacity as a lawyer, she was uh, trying to prevent the grand jury from getting all of this information. It's interesting she's not charged with that bigger charge, Kim. It maybe they don't have the evidence, which requires um, an intent to use force, to uh, obstruct, you know, to to attack the authority of the United States. It may be that they don't have evidence of her intent to attack. Um, although she was present in that parking garage meeting on January 5th, which sounds like where right. some of this planning occurred. It may also be that they're holding back some of the more serious charges, you know, as leverage to see if they can get her to cooperate. A lawyer could be pretty um, important. Now, of course, there's privilege issues that belong to the client, but there are a lot of things that are not protected by the privilege. The crime fraud exception would apply if they're talking about destroying evidence and committing crimes together. So it may very well be that she could be a key witness who talks about um, you know, how this plot occurred and helped to obtain convictions against Rhodes and others, which I still think are all a pathway to inviting, uh, indicting Trump in his inner circle. Yeah,
1: Joyce, what do you think?
0: You know, I think Barb's analysis is really good. I I had thought that there was some reporting early on, and I may be wrong about this, that Her lawyers, at least, were representing that she was being fully cooperative with the investigation. So I had wondered if this indictment maybe signified that that cooperation had fallen apart in Mm -hmm. some way. Mm -hmm. That's a possibility. And I think that Barb's sense that they would rather have her as a witness than as a defendant is a very good sense. She would obviously be an important witness um, in this sort of a setting— I do think there's something sort of interesting going on here. I I doubt that it's intentional on DOJ's part, but they have certainly signified that they are not afraid to indict a lawyer who engages in misconduct, including obstruction of evidence, obstruction of justice. So uh, beware all those lawyers that we were talking about who are still on Team Trump down at Mar-a-Lago. You're not immune just because you're a lawyer.
1: That's such an important point. And, uh, you know, it's perilous for uh, lawyers that are representing Donald Trump for reasons that we have talked about here, both when you're an attorney, you have a client, you need your client to listen to you. You need your client to follow your advice. You need your client to pay you. Um, And Trump is prone not to do any of those things. Uh, That's perilous enough. But if they're drawn into schemes, and in this case, we're talking about the Oath Keepers, but we're talking about also talking about those directly in Trump's um, circle. When they're drawn into the schemes, the attorney-client privilege does not act as a shield uh, if you are participating in what is determined by a jury to be criminal activity. So it's an important thing to keep in mind as well. You know, there's also a, a teachable
2: moment here, I think, for ethics for lawyers. You know, Joyce, I know you teach, you've got first years this year. You know, I talk about integrity frequently and about how important it is as a lawyer. And I kind of sometimes get the sense that there's a little bit of eye rolling. Like, well, of course, of course I'm going to act with integrity. Of course I'm going to uphold all ethics. And yet we've prosecuted lawyers, right? You've prosecuted lawyers. Somehow- and I'm sure they sat in a classroom at some point, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 years ago and did the same sort of thing. Like, of course, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna be ethical. And at some point along the way, you know, things go astray. And I think that what I've seen is people have a really incredible ability to rationalize for themselves why what they're doing is is right. You know, they deserve it. Uh, they aren't paid enough anyway. They're just taking what they're rightfully entitled to. Um, they start seeing shades of gray or something, but boy, um I don't know how you destroy evidence or conceal evidence without thinking, you know, or with somehow thinking that's okay. Well, this week's news had some interesting First Amendment implications. I know all of us are strong advocates of the First Amendment. Um, And we had some issues that arise that I'm curious to ask you about. First, Joyce, let me ask you about this memo that was issued by Attorney General Merrick Garland that prohibits non-career DOJ employees from attending political rallies or fundraisers. Um, First, what's a non-career employee? So these are folks
0: who are appointed by the president. These are the political appointees who um, are not building their entire career at DOJ like the career folks. They come in with an administration. Usually they leave at the end of it.
2: And so what are your thoughts about this? Do you think this in any way violates their, you know, their First Amendment right to free assembly, to, you know, to show up? They're told you can't go to a political rally. You can't go to a fundraiser. What are your thoughts on that?
0: You know, that's really the long standing rule at DOJ, right? You could, uh, for instance, go if you were engaged in what the department characterizes passive participation. You could maybe stand in the crowd at some sort of a political event. Garland wanted to make this really clear, and I I think he's done the right thing here. He doesn't want to hear any stories in the press about one of his political appointees who on the eve of the election is at an event for a senatorial candidate or or something else and have that muddy up the waters about this department's commitment to conducting its business in an apolitical fashion. I don't think it runs afoul of the First Amendment for a couple of reasons— First off, the First Amendment typically bars the government from making a law that prohibits your speech or assembly rights. Well, here it's sort of a contractual deal. What, in essence, the department does is it says if you want to be a political appointee here, you have to agree to abide by certain rules. And those rules are consistent with the Hatch Act, which was largely ignored during the Trump administration, but actually prohibits in large measure political activity, partisan political activity by folks inside of the department. So Look, I don't have any problem with this decision at all. I will say, Barb, and and you may know this story. My husband, Bob, was running for the Alabama um, State Supreme Court to be chief justice while I was U.S. attorney. And so I went to the department to get advice about what I could and couldn't do in that campaign setting. And David Margolis, who was then the ranking um, career official at DOJ, sent me back this really lovely memo saying, Look, you know, you can go to fundraisers, but you can't ask people to donate b- money to Bob. You can't accept money, but you can just sit there. And I went back to David's office and I said, David, this is the wrong opinion. I don't want to have to spend <laughs> going to get these dinners. And I was and hoping you'd you tell me no. So um, he did, though. He he graciously wrote me a second, far more restrictive <laughs> opinion, <laughs> and and spared me a lot of um, interesting evenings. I think.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I actually I didn't go to anything when I was U.S. attorney because I was you know hyper paranoid about making sure I wasn't doing anything inappropriate. But it was kind of nice, wasn't it? People like hit you up for fundraisers. Like ah, oh, sorry, can't can't do I it. Can't. it. Kim, what are your thoughts? Why do you, why do do you suppose Merrick Garland entered this order now? Because I think it goes a little further than um, some of the things we'd seen before. I think it's it's it, it's true yeah. that the policy was like that, but it wasn't so obviously stated in a memo that was issued to all employees in an election year.
1: Well, uh, Attorney General Garland is clearly concerned about the investigations that are ongoing, particularly those involving Donald Trump, being misconstrued. As a political exercise, as opposed to a law enforcement one, and he doesn't want to risk the reputation of the department, um, or its, uh, or the folks working within it, with any. Of with anything like what Joyce describes someone being seen at a political event, even if they're just there as an observer, even if they're just there as a friend, if they're not donating, they just he wants to make things really clear. And we've seen lots of reporting in the last couple of weeks, which I think is interesting that someone within the DOJ is speaking off the record to reporters about this, but that there is a deep concern of not repeating the kind of mistakes that former FBI director James Comey made in trying to be not political, but ended up being super duper political and wanting to, and um, Garland really wants to keep this as clean as possible. So I think that's why he is reiterating and underscoring this existing policy. Yeah,
2: and you know, I think in, in the old days, people were able to skirt around this from time to time without any negative consequence. But I think we just live in different times, you know, with social media and all kinds of things. Even if you are, very innocently attending one of these things, somebody's going to take a picture of it and try to suggest that you're somehow, you know, a political hack and making decisions based on partisan politics. It's just best to to stay away. Well, let's move to another uh, First Amendment topic in the news this week, Kim. I want to ask you about this. There was this reporting that um, in Florida at the hearing where um, the lawyers were arguing before the judge about the appointment of the special master, that the court um, turned off the wifi and did not permit any tweeting, any blogging about what was happening. And so instead we were getting these you know, very patchy reports as reporters kind of ran in and out of the courthouse with um, updates. Um, what do you think about that? Is, that? is that a free press issue?
1: Yeah, there was a lot of outrage uh, by reporters who were there, which I, as a reporter can totally understand that happening. Um, But is there a free speech First Amendment issue here? My answer is no. For reasons similar to what Joyce pointed out in the fact that the DOJ is able to make rules um, about how its department operates that governs its employees. Similarly, so um, courts, federal courts are allowed to and are tasked with themselves making the rules about Um, how information is transmitted by those courts. And some courts allow full access. They allow you to live tweet. They allow you to take recording vices in and basically do whatever you want. And others, like the U.S. Supreme Court, don't. So I've covered the Supreme Court for a long time. You cannot... Take in anything more than a pad and paper. You cannot take in a phone. You cannot take in a recording device. You cannot take in an Apple Watch because they do not allow recording devices within the court. At one point when there was sort of a tag team operation being done by one media organization where one would go inside the courtroom, then come out, tell someone else what was happening and someone else started live tweeting it, the press office made them stop or else they would have to leave. So on the one hand, no, this, a court cannot operate in a way where there is no access to what is happening inside. There is absolutely no visibility. But a court can absolutely set rules about which media outlets are allowed inside, how they can report on it, which which equipment they can bring in or out Um in a way, and it listen, sometimes it makes sense. I, I've not covered this particular court, the district court in Florida, but I've covered the US Supreme Court. And it's a small press chamber, and I can see if reporters are running in and out or if they're clicking on devices and it's echoing off the marble in the courtroom. It could be disruptive to the proceedings. Also, we know that the Supreme Court justices themselves want their opinions to speak more than whatever the live account is mm. of journalists now that argument has lost some of its weight. Over the last two years when oral arguments are being streamed live, the the audio to it is being streamed live, then the sky is not falling, but there's still not the disruption within the courtroom. So courts are able to set rules. I wouldn't like it. Is it a bad look for them to shut off this Wi Fi that they were <laughs> providing before um for this hearing? Yeah, it's a terrible look. It looks it, it's terrible and I would be angry if I was a reporter. But the truth is they didn't have to give you that Wi Fi in the first yeah. place. That was something that they offered and they can take it away just like yeah.
2: they did think the default rule ought to be, you know, like there are no cameras in the courtroom in federal courts. Um, and I get it. Kim just raised a really good point, I think, which is there are certain cases perhaps where, um, you know, there's a necessity of uh, avoiding real time transmissions. But in general, do you think it's a, a good rule or a bad rule that uh, courts can prevent the live transmission of events. You know, in our court in Detroit, I was very accustomed to they had a press room down the hall. And so they weren't in the courtroom. They would get a live stream into the press room so that they weren't being disruptive. And they could sit there with their laptops and they they live blogged. Yeah. And I thought it was a great service to the public because, you know, when you just read a recap at the end of the day, it's really hard to follow along. But they did a, you know, blow by blow of some of the big cases. And I, I think it was a real service to the public to be able to follow along even if they couldn't physically be in the courtroom.
0: Yeah, so as you say, there are ways around the technological issues. There's a way to make sure that the quiet is maintained in the courtroom while the proceedings are going on. And if the federal judiciary wants the public to have confidence in it, then they need to become more transparent. There's, there's a difference, Kim, I think you're absolutely right to point out between appellate courts and and trial courts, and maybe different measure of um, just how you make the access work. But frankly, in a case like the one that went on yesterday, where there was a high level of national interest, something that the judge is undoubtedly going to have to acknowledge when she writes her opinion— I think keeping the public effectively out of the proceedings is a terrible mistake. It doesn't do anything to strengthen our institutions. I'm told that the reason she cut off the Wi-Fi was because there was someone in the courtroom who was live blogging, you know, click, 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 and that within the first five minutes of the proceeding, she shut that, that down and had the Wi-Fi turned off. That seems sort of petty and vindictive and unnecessary to me. Federal judges have a lot of power. I think that they should exercise it wisely
1: and in the best interests of the public, which after all is their employer. Absolutely. I agree with that wholeheartedly. It may not be a First Amendment violation, but it certainly is a lack of transparency that really undermines confidence in our institutions.
2: Well, now comes our favorite part of the show where we answer listener questions. And it's really a lot of fun for us to sort through the questions. We get so many good ones. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw@politicon.com at or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye out on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. So our first question comes to us from Marie in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And Marie asks, is the Texas law prohibiting healthcare providers from telling patients how to access abortion care in other states, a violation of the First Amendment? If not, why not? Joyce, you want to take a stab at that one? So I think that this is a great question. And the answer, Marie, is
0: whatever the Supreme Court says it is when this case (laughs) lands in front of the Supreme Court, because that's inevitable. I think that there's a really good argument here that this violates the First Amendment, which prohibits government from imposing restraints on speech. And this seems like an important category of restraint. Um, You can imagine, right, what would happen if the state told doctors that they couldn't counsel patients about the existence or availability or functionality of Viagra. Um, certainly men would not stand for that and would view that as a First Amendment violation. This is a far more core issue, in many cases, going to medical necessity and saving a a woman's life. So because of the serious matter that's impacted by this, I think that we will see these lawsuits. And I would hope that they would be successful even with this Supreme Court. But frankly, they've dashed my hope so
2: many times that I don't want to even take on that prediction. All right. Our next question comes to us from Stephanie in Greensboro, North Carolina. And she asks, can you help me understand why we had so many documents printed on paper for Trump to remove or steal? In this day and age, is important information not stored digitally? Paper seems so old school. Stephanie, you are so right about that. Actually, much of the government's classified information is now stored on secure servers. There are Uh, separate computer systems for secret and top-secret information. Um, And they're stored in SCIFs, these uh, special compartmented—I'm sorry, let me start again. They're stored in SCIFs, uh, sensitive compartmented information facilities, and you have to read them on the computer in that room. And so I imagine that it's simply the convenience of printing these out for Trump to look at, that is the reason they are on paper. Uh, I don't imagine Donald Trump would go into a skiff and they'd set it up on a computer for him to look at. So they would print these things out. But as you've seen in some of these photos, what they would do is staple a cover sheet onto the document. And it must state the classification level of the content of the document. So you saw some that said top secret SCI, uh, sensitive compartmented information. Uh, and that is information, the disclosure of which uh, would cause exceptionally grave damage to the national security of the United States. So that cover sheet really is, you know, when I saw those, it was like it was radioactive. You know, you can only open it in a skiff and my gosh, put it back in the safe as quickly as possible, because I don't want to drop this somewhere I'm not supposed to or leave it lying around. And so, you know, the idea that these documents are, uh, you know, in a desk drawer in Trump's office where guests come and go and he's got his passport in there really is crazy. So I think mostly, yes,
1: they're um, digitally stored, but I think they were printed out for his convenience. Thank you so much, because I always forget what the F stands for in SCIF. And I feel like I need to explain it. And I'm always (laughs) wary too, because I can never remember. Facility. Facility. Thank you. There you go. I, I was glad
0: to hear you say that you had that sort of reaction to seeing stuff lying around because it made me twitchy seeing that picture yeah. with all of the classified <laughs> yeah. covers. You know, I was the same way. I, I read and I immediately had it go back into the safe or wherever it needed to go um, just because we were so hyper careful. You know, you get a mm-hmm, briefing mm-hmm. when you get these clearances. I assume yeah. that Trump got this Oh, same they scare kind you to death, briefing. right? And it, it it doesn't just scare you, it also explains why the why carefully guarding the information is so important. And you sort of know that if you're reading the information, right? You're not looking at it thinking, I have no idea why this is classified. It's pretty obvious. The fact that he was so cavalier, um, boy, it's just it it I had a physical reaction to that picture. Yeah. It really surprised me. I mean yeah. it's unbelievable.
2: You know what it reminds me of when I played, um, Uh, junior high basketball. I loved playing, but I wasn't very good. And so whenever somebody threw me the ball, I just wanted to get rid of it so fast. So, you know, I didn't dribble. I didn't shoot. It was just (laughs) get rid of it as quickly as possible. That's how I feel hand unclassified
1: information. Listen, I shred like mail that has my name and, and (laughs) birth date on it. Like I just, just having that information lying around somewhere, it's horrifying. It is.
2: It is. Um, but his lawyers are saying it's it's just like an overdue library book, Kim. No. No different. No. Mm-mm. It's different.
1: It's different. No, this is not a tale of two cities. No. <laughs> All
2: right. And our final question comes to us from Tom, who asks, mustn't any judge recuse him or herself when a case comes before said judge that involves the person who appointed said judge? If not, why not? Kim, what do you think?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question because we do want uh, impartiality from our judges. So if we're talking about federal judges... Um, There are rules that govern when judges must recuse. And as we've mentioned, they cover all federal judges, except when it comes to the Supreme Court, it's self-administering. So they're really on the honor system. But it really involves things like financial disclosures. If they're ruling on a case involving a company in which a judge has investments or something like that, they would be required uh, to recuse. There really isn't the same thing when it comes to political ties. And in a way, it makes sense. We want our public officials to be held accountable uh, by the levers of government, including the courts and these judges, federal judges have to be appointed by someone. So it really wouldn't make sense if, a president or anyone else has a group of judges that whether it's because a senator voted to confirm them or a president nominated them, suddenly they cannot hear cases involving that person. It would create this kind of weird immunity. So instead, what we do is we trust that these judges will act um, with honor and ethics and their own accountability in handling these cases. And if they don't, there are uh, procedures by which they can be held accountable to. So that is why, no, you you will see Trump-appointed judges dealing with some of these cases, like in Florida, uh, that involve Donald Trump. And we really need the system to work that way, or else it would create these immunity pockets that would be um, really, really awful. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law
2: with Kimberly Atkins-Store, Joyce Vance, and me, Barb McQuaid. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw@politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. Go to politicon.com merch to buy our pale blue tea, hoodie, and other goodies. And please support this week's sponsors, HelloFresh, Thrive Cosmetics, Calm, Olive and June, and Moink. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode, Hashtag Sisters in Law.
1: You know, I, I miss when Jill isn't on the show, not only for her brilliant analysis, but then we get no stories about yeah, how I know once- we're all business today.
0: Neither one of y'all has ever been married by, you know, a a tribe deep in woods. Right.
2: (laughs) We haven't had dinner with uh, headhunters.
1: (laughs) You know, going on a spaceship or, you know, I don't know what. I feel like there are still hundreds of stories that Jill has left to tell for us that I wait every week to, you know, with bated breath to hear. And my life just not, is just not nearly as interesting as hers is. And. You know, when she's gone, it's like, oh, nobody, nobody talked about, you know, filing a brief and, you know, while in an igloo in Alaska. I mean, (laughs) I I don't know what, what else has she done? I can't even predict it.
0: I was going to say the one thing we can predict is she will come back with more stories, right? There's no way she's going on a trip like this. It's going to be great. We're going to have
2: so much fun when she gets back. Yeah. African safari. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs)